0: The first, degree. first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. You see it on the news, you see it on the paper, you see
1: it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life.
2: I always think of your phrase when you say keep your friends close, but not that close. This is your Friend, and it's almost so impossible to comprehend. Like, are you sure you got this right? Like,
3: I see this woman all the time. Welcome to the First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting here with the beautiful Alexis Linkletter. She looks.
4: I have gorgeous. makeup on for
3: once. <laughs> <laughs> we go from like goblin
4: to whatever this is. Yeah, it's all a facade, you know. Tons of makeup. Yeah, I got my extensions in. You know. You look gorgeous. Thank you.
3: It took an hour. (laughs) It it takes a village, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) No, it's like you only have two looks. Not you. I mean me. By you, I mean me. Anyone. I look like a trash bag or I look like I'm going to like a gala. So yes.
4: Now you're you're on the ladder. especially good at the transformation though.
3: Thank you. I mean, it just shocks (laughs) people. You have to set everybody's, uh, you have to set the bar low. So when you put a little bit of effort in, people are like, oh my God, you look amazing. Stunning. I never realized that. I was like, yeah, because I just look like normal before. <laughs> exactly. Um, do you want to know what day? De- well, actually, before we get into the day, I want to remind everybody, if you're loving the first degree and you want some bonus content, come on over to our first degree Patreon.
4: Yeah. And what we needed to say, and maybe we haven't said or punctuated exactly the way we needed to, is that we've got more than 50 episodes on there now. Like yeah. 50 episodes, different cases, different angles of how we explore cases. I mean, we have a lot of content on there. So if you find yourself like, oh my gosh, I listened to the most recent episode of the first degree and I'm out, there's your solution.
3: Yeah. Patreon.com
4: backslash first degree or forward slash,
3: uh, whatever slash the case is on the, the World Wide Web. And We have, I mean, all of our bonus content for the new episodes are pretty much mostly true crime now. We're doing extra cases every single week. But then if you are loving Killing Time and you love seeing our beautiful faces, you can watch all of Killing Time on video on the Patreon as well. So we have lots of bonus content for you over there. Please join us. And we also understand
4: most of you are probably there for Jared. That's fine. You see his beautiful face there and that's why you're all there. there.
3: That's yeah. right. We got to we got to sell it somehow, you know? Totally. <laughs> okay, I'll do a quick day today. So today is Wednesday, March 1st. Thank God we're in March. And it is uh National Peanut Butter Lovers Day, which I love. I have a scoop of PB. I have peanut butter every day. It's also National Wedding Planning Day. What a delight for your situation what a day for me. I'm pretty much wedding planning every single day at this point. So it's also share a smile day and world compliment day. It's incredible. This is perfect. I love all these days. It's a great day today. All right. Well, that is enough of that. So let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you.
4: So in the world of true crime, we talk about evil a lot. What we don't realize about the word evil is that it's biblical. It's theological. And it's used sweepingly in the true crime space to morally condemn behavior that's so abhorrent it defines explanation. But what is evil exactly? And how do we know when someone is evil versus when they've made a horrific mistake? What defines it? And we have to ask this question, especially when it comes to malicious acts that involve our society's most vulnerable, children. So these are all the
3: questions we're exploring in today's episode. We begin today's case on July 2nd of 2005. So in the sports world, former number one Venus Williams bounced back from a borderline defeat against Lindsay Davenport to win her third Wimbledon title in the longest Wimbledon ladies final of all time. On the Billboard charts, Carrie Underwood held the number one spot with Inside Your Heaven, Knocking We Belong Together by Mariah Carey down to number two. And people were going to see Steven Spielberg's sci-fi action film, War of the Worlds. The Batman series origin story, Batman Begins, starring Christian Bale, was also proving pretty popular in the theaters. And it was also the lead up to the 4th of July weekend when people all around the country were preparing for fireworks and family get togethers.
4: And the setting for today's case is Wake Forest, North Carolina. Situated in the east-central North Carolina, mainly in Wake County, the town of around 20,000 people is located 17 miles north-northeast of the state capital of Raleigh. So Wake Forest is known for its annual dance festival every fall, which features performances by professional dancers from across the country and the
3: world, as well as local
4: choreographers and dance school students.
3: And our first degree for today's case is named Kelly. Back in the mid-2000s, Kelly was a stay-at-home mom of two who had just moved into a brand new housing subdivision in Wake Forest. Not long afterwards, in 2004, a new family moved into the neighborhood with a couple of kids the same age as Kelly's children. The couple were Chris and Peggy Sue Hilt, and they moved there from Fairfax, Virginia.
2: It was a brand-new community. It was one of those, like, we built a house from scratch, so it took months and months to be completed. We were there before them, and we had been there maybe six months, and I see this house across the street almost to completion. And all of a sudden, the family moves in, and I see that they have two young children, and I had two young children. They ended up being the exact same ages. So
4: 34-year-old Chris and 32-year-old Peggy had lived in Fairfax for almost 10 years before moving to Wake Forest, and Peggy worked as a dental assistant in North Raleigh, and Chris was a software developer who ran his own consulting business.
2: Her husband would be gone all day at work, just like my husband would be gone all day at work. He'd get home at 6 o'clock at night, and her and I really did not interface that much in the evenings because that's when, you know, you're busy with making dinner and the kids need a bath and all those things you have to do when they're in bed by 8 o'clock. We did get together a couple times as couples and have dinner together, but I didn't get to know him as well just because, again, you know, as a working dad, he didn't get home until the evening, and then he was busy with his own family. But he adored his girls. Absolutely. It was very obvious.
3: Kelly learned that after Chris and Peggy married, they were really looking forward to starting a family. But they soon encountered ongoing infertility issues, which is obviously heartbreaking for any wannabe mom. And the couple decided to go down the long and complex route of international adoption. And after a really intensive process in April of 2001, they adopted a baby girl from Ukraine. When they brought her home, they gave her a new name, Natalia. Chris and Peggy loved her more than anything in the world. And by 2003, they wanted to expand their family. So the
4: second time around, the independent adoption process in Ukraine, which Peggy and Chris had used previously for Natalia, and they did this through a lawyer – not an agency. The whole process had changed. So given that around 600 to 700,000 children were in orphanages at the time in Russia, Peggy and Chris wanted to adopt a Russian child. So they went through a Texas-based adoption agency called Adoptions International, Inc. And following a home visit from a social worker in May of 2003, the couple took their first trip to Russia. And there they met a six-month-old baby girl.
2: My oldest daughter and her oldest daughter were the same age, four. And her first adoption with Natalia just went wonderful, just had a great experience, which is why they decided to adopt Nina, the second child. Victoria
4: Valeneva Bezanova was born on October 11, 2002, in a southern Siberian city. She'd been surrendered to the orphanage after being abandoned by her birth mother. And even though she seemed a little quiet and withdrawn, The Hilts were totally in love with Victoria and with her gorgeous smile. In January of 2004, Chris and Peggy brought their new daughter home, and they also renamed her, naming her Nina, and made Victoria her middle name. So five months later, the family had another social worker visit, and everything seemed to be going really well with this new
3: family. And according to Nina's father, Chris, Nina had a really adventurous spirit and enjoyed physical play. As English was her second language and Nina wasn't much of a talker, her speech skills weren't as advanced as other toddlers her age, but they were sure that she'd adjust and catch up with time. And luckily, Nina had strong nonverbal communication and she was an emotionally expressive little girl.
4: And with any adoption, there are going to be expected challenges. So initially, the petite Nina didn't have much of an appetite and Chris noticed she tended to hoard food. But eventually, Nina's appetite returned with
3: gusto, and she developed a diverse palate. So Nina was a total daddy's girl, and she was really close to both her father and her sister. And there was the usual sibling bickering between the girls, and on occasion, Nina even bit Natalia, which wasn't really unusual given Nina's age. But Natalia loved her little sister. One of Chris's
4: favorite memories of Nina was what he called her monster walk. So Nina would slowly walk around a corner with her hands out in front like she's Frankenstein, moving them in opposite directions. And as she got near someone, she'd moan in the deepest voice she could, making scary sounds. And when Chris let her come close enough, he'd yell, boo, which would send a squealing and giggling Nina running around the corner.
3: It's so cute. Really cute. Ugh. So Natalia and Nina attended Chesterbrook Academy Preschool, which was really close to Peggy's work. According to the Raleigh News and Observer, Nina liked to play dress up, play house, get in the sandbox, and she really, really liked story time at preschool. But in January of 2005, Peggy quit her job and she pulled the girls out of preschool, telling her boss that she wanted to spend more time with her daughters given that they were so young. She also told others the girls had nightmares and she wanted to spend more time at home. Our first degree, Kelly, was a stay-at-home mom as well. So she and Peggy began spending even more time together with the kids.
2: I was a stay-at-home mom and Peggy was a stay-at-home mom. There were very few other stay-at-home moms and also families in the neighborhood because it was a fairly new development. So we became friends because being two stay-at-home moms with kids the exact same age, it was great for playdates. That's how our friendship relationship started is that we got the kids together weekly, whether it was going to the pool or just going to each other's homes. At the time, the kids were two and four. That's a busy age, so often it's just playdates in each other's homes or in the backyard, on the play sets, the park, the pool, that kind of thing.
4: Peggy and Kelly became close friends and started watching each other's kids and helping each other out. And it was so convenient, given they were right across the street from each other.
2: I really did like her. When we first met, both had different struggles with raising children, being a stay-at-home mom, not having family immediately there. I had family that was like a couple hours away, and she had family a couple of hours away, but didn't have grandma and grandpa in the same town. So I would watch her kids a couple hours a week so that she could go to Target or the grocery store in some peace and quiet and she would watch my children for a few hours. So we used to do that weekly.
4: Over time, Peggy confided in Kelly that Nina was having behavioral problems and she felt like they weren't bonding the way they should. She felt that Nina was literally pushing her away, which was the total opposite of Peggy's experience with her first adopted daughter, Natalia. And Peggy hoped that time and love would heal any and all of Nina's emotional wounds and that one day they could cherish the same bond that the Hilts had with Natalia and the same bond that Chris had with Nina. I mean, Chris was able to bond with his adopted daughter, but Peggy was not. So Peggy also told another neighbor that being a stay-at-home mom was sending her kind of into this stir-crazy state. And with that, the neighbor suggested that Peggy could benefit maybe from putting the girls back into part-time care and maybe she could take some time to care for herself.
2: I know that she adored the oldest one. So I think she expected that she would bond with the second one. And I think that when she didn't, I think that was obviously very frustrating for her. I think she wanted to, of course. I remember her sharing with me her struggles and that she just didn't feel like she was bonding with Nina as much. She just didn't feel as close to her and that that was difficult.
3: So Kelly didn't really think much of the conversation. You know, being a mom of two kids the exact same age, she assured Peggy that it was nothing out of the ordinary for most parents.
2: I had one child that was easier than the other. So I remember being like, oh, I understand there's always one child that's a little more difficult than the other. And we would just talk about parenting styles and that kind of things. I thought she seemed like a loving, doting mother. I mean, they went through so much to adopt those two girls. They had tried to have children on their own and that didn't happen. So all the efforts in going through adoption, I never doubted that she had loved those girls.
4: Things continued as normal for almost a year, with Kelly and Peggy alternating looking after each other's kids every week. Then... On the 4th of July weekend of 2005, there was a knock on Kelly's door. And when she opened it, she was face-to-face with FBI agents. And that was a huge shock.
2: All these police started coming into our neighborhood on that Monday, and they were knocking on doors. Do you know Peggy Hill And everybody kept saying, no, not really, but if you want to know somebody who does, it's Kelly. So I literally had... Just unbeknownst to me, all of a sudden, I had three FBI agents at my door Monday morning and were asking me all these questions. And at the time, I didn't know anything was wrong. What was this
4: unexpected FBI visit about? Why were these agents asking questions about Peggy? Who from the outside looking in looks straight as an arrow? Like, why is anyone looking at this mother? What could she possibly be involved in?
3: And what Kelly didn't know is that her world was about to come crashing down around her. And to find out what happened next, you know the drill. We gotta go back. When our first read Kelly opened the door
4: one July day in 2005, she was stunned to see FBI agents right on her doorstep. And even weirder, they wanted to come inside and ask her some questions about her neighbor and close friend, Peggy Sue Hilt. So Kelly is bewildered by this. She thinks this is super odd because, first of all, the Hilts were away in Virginia for the weekend visiting Peggy's family. They weren't even in town at the time this was happening.
2: I knew that she was going out of town to go see her family in Virginia, but they had a cat. And so I remember her telling me that they were going to leave the cat at home.
3: And would I come over and feed the cat? The Hilts weren't due back for several more days, but the agents on Kelly's doorstep seemed really, really serious. They questioned Kelly in a really vague way, about Peggy, about her treatment of her daughters, and Nina in particular. And as they probed further, Kelly got this terrible feeling that something unexpected had occurred, even if the agents wouldn't confirm it when she was asking them.
2: The questions that they were asking me led me to believe that something had happened to her in Virginia. Did you ever see bruises? You know, Did you ever notice her to be violent? You just kind of put two and two together. It was just kind of like, I remember saying like, are you sure she did this? And you could just see them kind of nodding like, yeah, it's pretty obvious she did based on the evidence we have. So later that night after the FBI left,
4: Kelly got a surprise phone call and guess who it was from? It was from Peggy. And on this call, Kelly did not mention that the FBI had been there visiting her, And uh, she just kind of waited to hear what Peggy had to say. And what Peggy asked was that Kelly take care of their cat a bit longer because they were going to be in Virginia a bit longer than expected. So adding to Kelly's whirlwind of confusion was the fact that Peggy made no mention of anything going on with her daughter, Nina.
2: I had already known something had happened to Nina and Peggy called me from Virginia and wanted to know how the cat was. And I remember thinking to myself, like, oh, my gosh, she's worried about the cat. But I couldn't say anything. She said, I don't think I'm going to be home for a while, so please make sure to take care of the cat.
3: So what exactly was going down in Virginia? And what had happened between the Hilts leaving and federal investigators showing up at Kelly's house? On July 1st, Peggy was getting things ready for the family road trip that they were leaving for the following day for the 4th of July weekend to visit their family.
4: Apparently... The next day, when Nina woke up lethargic and feverish, Peggy thought Nina had caught a flu that Natalia, her older sister, had been dealing with the week before the trip. So despite Nina being under the weather, the Hilts hit the road with their caravan. I mean, I've certainly been there. When you're sick, as a kid, they're Mm -hmm. like, you're coming anyway. Like, you've got a flu. I mean, I don't think people used to treat illnesses the same way as they do now. No. If you're like, you're sick, cancel, don't come, like cancel anything you've planned for weeks. Yeah. But that didn't used to be the thing. It's like, you have a flu. It's like, Suck don't it get up. too close to me. Yeah. Yeah. So during the four-hour car ride from North Carolina to Virginia, Nina threw up twice, which didn't strike Peggy as anything to be super concerned about. Kids get car sick, don't they? So like, is this
3: a big deal? She didn't think so. And when the hilts got to Virginia, everybody headed out for a day of fun, except for Peggy. She stayed home to care for Nina. The two-year-old's condition hadn't improved, and she ended up stopped eating altogether. But when Nina suddenly stopped breathing, a panicked Peggy called nine one one.
2: Nine one one, where is your
4: first? Oh, oh
0: my god, my baby is not breathing. Okay, oh what's god. your address? Oh what is your address? I don't. We're at my friend's house. It's on <laughs> oh, okay. oh my god! Oh my god. god! Ma'am. I think. Oh my god! Okay, ma'am. Help me. Ma'am, I'm trying to tell
1: you what
4: to do. As you heard. Peggy's panicking, and this little girl was rushed to the hospital by emergency responders. And to everyone's horror, she was pronounced dead when she arrived. So unbeknownst to a distraught Peggy, from the time Nina had been brought in, the wheels had been turning behind the scenes, and investigators were already starting to look at her. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. When the body of two-year-old Nina Hilt was examined after her sudden death while on a family vacation in Virginia, the full extent of her condition became apparent. The toddler had fresh bruises all over her body, but notably between her eyebrows, on her chin, collarbone, neck, chest, and the left side of her ribcage and right forearm. There were also serious abrasions on one shin and blood had pooled at her right
3: hip and her small intestine had ruptured and she had a cut lip. The paramedics and Nina's ER doctor had to tread really carefully. They kind of had reason to believe that something suspicious was potentially behind her death. Because unless Nina had met with a serious misadventure in the 24 to 48 hours before she died, the signs all pointed towards a case of severe physical abuse. When she was brought to the
2: hospital, the doctors are trained to know what to look for for abuse. And I believe she had a bunch of bruises all over her stomach and face and just signs that something was wrong. So they knew that something wasn't right with Peggy's
3: story. When police were notified, they spoke to both Chris and Peggy. So Chris had been at work the day before the family left for North Carolina. He said that when he arrived home at around 530 at night, he noticed Nina had some bad bruising on her face, which hadn't been there when he left that morning. Peggy told him that Nina had fallen down the stairs while Peggy was packing their bags, and Chris had no reason not to believe his wife. Right. And in speaking
4: with investigators, Peggy confirmed Nina had fallen down the stairs the day before they left. And she admitted she hadn't sought medical treatment at the time, thinking the fall wasn't that serious. But law enforcement at this point, they think there is more to the story. And Chris started to think there was more to the story too. When hospital staff allowed the devastated parents to view Nina's body before it was taken for autopsy, Chris could not believe the state of Nina's body when he saw how badly she'd been injured.
3: And Peggy would later say in an interview that the day after Nina's death, she started to realize that she could actually have been responsible for her death. You know, I mean, every parent would feel responsible if their child took a severe tumble down the stairs that resulted in a severe injury. And also Peggy did fail to seek medical attention for her daughter, which was highly negligent. And while Peggy grappled with this realization, police got the heartbroken parents back in for further questioning and focused their attention now on the grieving mom. They knew that Peggy was withholding information. And this time, she didn't hold back. Right. And it seemed as
4: though her attitude and approach about the whole thing had changed. So she told police that her actions the day before the family left for Virginia had, in fact, led directly to Nina's death. And not because Peggy was negligent and failed to supervise her daughter properly. Not because she had failed to seek medical care for her daughter, but because she had in fact beaten her two-year-old daughter within an inch of her life. So this is obviously a stunning, shocking, and horrifying revelation. This is a woman who seemingly loved her children, was a devoted mother to the first adopted child she had. So this begs a lot of questions. How did Peggy get here? What could possibly cause someone to beat their child to this degree, one they very much claim to want and love, let alone beat them to death? So, to unravel the real truth about what happened, we're gonna go back one more time. Way back before Peggy Hilt met Chris and became a mom, she grew up as one of six kids in Ogdensburg, New York. The family didn't have a lot of money to spare. And Peggy's verbally abusive father was an alcoholic, which didn't make things easier. And the family situation caused Peggy to be the victim of bullying at school, which is not great. And by the age of 12, she had turned to alcohol herself as a means to cope and had even
3: tried to take her own life, which is horrific when you think she's 12. Yeah. Yeah. That's horrible. So Peggy found refuge in the one thing that gave her joy, and that was babysitting. Peggy couldn't wait to be married one day and have her own family. At college in New York, she met Chris Hilt and the couple married in 1994 before moving to Virginia.
4: Right. And as their journey to conceive became more untenable, Chris and Peggy adopted Natalia and then Nina, like we told you in the beginning of this episode. And the couple were only permitted to meet Nina once before bringing her home. And according to Newsweek, when they went to collect her, Russian authorities made them sign paperwork that suggested that the couple had spent way more pre-adoption contact and time with Nina than they had actually truly done. So this is kind of odd, but Chris and Peggy, they just want their daughter. They, they, They just want this baby and they want her home with them. You know, you're not trying to like navigate the Russian adoption red tape, like you just sign what they give you because you're trying to get this kid home, you know? So I I kind of empathize with them there. So yeah, they just wanted this kid and they just wanted to sign whatever to make it happen.
3: Back in the U S the Hilts and their friends noticed that Nina wasn't as extroverted as Natalia and she didn't really have a natural affinity with Peggy. Like she did with Chris Peggy was disconcerted with Nina's lack of attachment to her, and she was the total opposite of Natalia. But staff at Nina's preschool really had no concerns about her ability to form attachments.
4: Right. And obviously, kids have different dispositions and personalities. And even those in biological families, like I couldn't be more different than my biological sisters. Right. Right. But like Peggy realized that something wasn't quite right with her and her youngest daughter's connection. And according to her, When she tried to get physically close with Nina, the toddler would push her away and become upset. And when Nina was distressed by any other stimulus, she refused physical contact and comfort from Peggy. So if she was trying to comfort her
3: about something or someone else, she still didn't want to engage in that, according to Peggy. And Peggy felt Nina's behavior was becoming more problematic. The 31-year-old mom started experiencing depression, and she turned to alcohol to both cope and numb the feelings of rejection and inadequacy. Chris knew his wife was internalizing Nina's behavior as something personal and an indication that she was a failure as a mother. Right, and Chris tried his best
4: to be supportive, but he had no idea of the extent of Peggy's inner turmoil. Like, sorry, Chris, most dudes wouldn't. Mm -hmm. Like... You know, it's traumatizing to want to have kids and not be able to, and then to adopt and then have your daughter reject you. Like, I think the inner narratives of mothers are something to be taken very – or or people who want to be mothers and women in general, of course he didn't understand. And of course he didn't – you know, this is not a pressure that he feels, right? But he tried to be supportive. He wanted to be supportive. And Peggy didn't Mm -hmm. want to admit that she was struggling, and she never spoke to any healthcare professionals. Um, She never spoke to the adoption agency. She never spoke to a therapist about the lack of bonding between her and Nina. And from her perspective, no matter what she did,
3: it seemed like Nina bonded with everyone but her. In January of 2005, just four months after moving to North Carolina, there was a cause for celebration when Peggy discovered that she was actually pregnant. But this was soon replaced with anguish when Peggy miscarried at the end of her first trimester. With Chris and Peggy's support network works now further away from them, Peggy's isolation increased and her mental health deteriorated even further. Right. And Peggy didn't seek help for processing the impact of this miscarriage.
4: And many women don't because the amounts of miscarriages that occur, I mean, they're astronomical. I mean, if every woman had the chance to mourn, we would all be out of work and people don't want that, right? So they want us to ignore it. But 10 to 20% of known pregnancies end in miscarriage. And that is just what people report. So it's probably more like 30 because people don't want to broadcast when this happens to them. So yeah, I mean, this is something that burdens and hurts a lot of women. So after Peggy miscarried, she just kind of put her head down. She said she was fine. And she tried to tell herself that she would be grateful for the two children she already had. And she pushed through her grief and she did that on her own. By this point, Peggy's self-worth was at an all-time low, and the loss just solidified to her that maybe she's not fit to be a mother. Maybe she never should have adopted. And, you know, she kind of spiraled, and it became really negative for her.
3: And during this time, Peggy kept drinking, sometimes up to 12 beers a day. Chris knew that Peggy was drinking frequently, but he had no idea the extent of it because she really concealed her drinking as well. And in addition to the despair she was feeling, resentment was also brewing as well. Right.
4: And like Peggy's husband, Chris, our first degree, Kelly, also had no idea that Peggy was drinking. She was like really a covert alcoholic, which is fascinating to me. I can't imagine learning that a friend of mine who I was with all the time was actually secretly drunk. Like that would be baffling. But this does happen. No one in Peggy's life knew that this was going on. This is what she was doing to cope with her parenting challenges with Nina.
2: She did not make it obvious at all. I remember one time we went to their house for dinner. I saw her have like maybe two beers. Maybe I had two glasses of wine. At that time, I... Barely drank. You know, I was so busy with the kids that, you know, by the time you got into bed at eight o'clock, you were exhausted. So she was a closet alcoholic. You know, I just think, oh my gosh, was she intoxicated when my children were over there? I don't know. I never saw it, but I know that alcoholics can hide that well. So
4: Peggy claimed Nina was willfully destructive and disobedient. And it was distressing for both of them. And according to ABC News, Peggy stated that Nina would sometimes bang her head against the wall pull her hair out if she was frustrated or have a full-blown meltdown of tantrums with all things getting so bad that Nina would lash out at Natalia, her older sister, and intentionally destroy things around the house. So what we're going to point out also is that Chris, Nina's father, disputes any claims that Nina was violent or
3: aggressive at all as a child. But we'll touch on that later, but giving you that caveat now. When Peggy opened up to the police, she told them about what happened the day before the family left for their vacation. Peggy claimed that Nina had been misbehaving all day, and at one stage when the younger girl went after Natalia with a fork, it was like a switch flipped inside Peggy. All the pent-up frustration, the resentment, and the grief that she'd been feeling for the last 16 months was unleashed on Nina in a brutal attack. So Peggy stated that she became
4: enraged and angered at Nina. And she would later tell detectives that she was not behaving and not listening and just crying. I was so angry, so angry. I got up to her bedroom and I said, stop it, stop it. I dropped her on the floor and I kicked her. Oh God. So after shaking Nina and kicking her in the stomach, Peggy picked her up, put her in her bed and continued to hit her on her back and stomach with a closed fist. That is a really hard
3: thing to read. You're never really like prepared for that because you think about this two-year-old's body and it's just, it's so horrific. And Peggy had no recollection of how many times that she struck Nina or whether the toddler cried at all. Peggy claimed that she never hit either of her daughters before and that she felt so disgusted and ashamed of herself that she vowed it would never happen again. But instead of seeking medical attention, Peggy left Nina on the bed and shut the door, leaving her unsupervised for the next three hours.
4: Peggy's husband, Chris, returned home from work that day around 5.30 p.m. And by this time,
3: Peggy was doing what she could to kind of minimize the situation. So she covered up as much of Nina's body as possible so Chris couldn't see the injuries. And like we already shared, Peggy explained away the bruises on Nina by telling Chris that their daughter had fallen down the stairs. Later that evening, Nina told Chris she had a sore stomach, but obviously he wouldn't have thought his wife had caused this and instead assumed that she'd come down with something.
4: Right, and the next morning, Nina wasn't any better. She was lethargic and she was running a fever. So not thinking the beating from the day before was causing Nina's symptoms or that injuries could be fatal, Peggy still didn't tell Chris the truth about what happened. And Peggy didn't even connect the fact that Nina was throwing up during the car ride to Virginia as a sign of internal bleeding from the beating she had caused and, or maybe she did know and she didn't really wanna face that realization, who knows?
3: And following her confession, Peggy was charged with second-degree murder and held without bond, and Chris was cleared of any involvement. Natalia, who showed no signs of abuse, was taken into protective custody and temporarily placed with an aunt, Chris's sister. Investigators arranged for police in Wake Forest to put the Hilt home under surveillance, and this was most likely so that nobody would enter the property and disturb any evidence that was there.
4: The Wake Forest PD executed a search warrant at the family home, and they immediately noticed the stark contrast between Natalia's room, which was a fun space filled with toys and color and, you know, softness, and Nina's room, which had no decor and was full of leftover moving boxes. But Nina's room was also confronting as a scene
3: for other reasons. Forensic officers found small stains on the floor and clumps of hair, Nina's pillow was stained with blood and so was Natalia's bed where Nina had slept following the assault. Officers took photos along with pieces of carpet, bedding, and electronic devices. And by this time, Nina's autopsy had determined her cause
4: of death was blunt force trauma to her abdomen. And hearing this, you know, bring herself to our first degree, Kelly, you know, she was stunned. She had no idea about any of these things that were going on behind closed doors And she hadn't considered Peggy's difficulty in bonding with Nina to be any kind of red flag. It seemed pretty normal as far as like mother's strifes go. I mean, they struggle with these things all the time. And as far as Kelly knew, they were just two moms in their own separate figurative trenches trying to get through each day, like all of the moms across this country, trying to do the best they can with whatever they can. Kelly had no idea of Peggy's struggle.
2: I just remember being just beyond shocked. There's people that you meet in your life that you see violent tendencies in them, and you wouldn't be surprised if the FBI knocked on your door, right? But this was just so unbelievable. I always think of your phrase when you say, keep your friends close, but not that close. This is your friend, and it's almost impossible to comprehend. Like, in my mind, I'm thinking the FBI, are you sure you got this right? I never saw any warning signs that she was harming Nina. Obviously, nobody did, or this Probably would have been prevented. I think that with adoption or even having your own children, right? You have a child, and if it's not going as great, it's not like you can hand them back or give them away.
3: As you can imagine, the news of the murder unleashed a media firestorm. Nina's death prompted a simultaneous investigation in her birth country, where officials were already up in arms over previous deaths of Russian children who had been adopted by American families. Nina was the 14th adopted Russian child to have been killed in the U.S. since 1996. That is a sobering statistic. When the U.S.
4: adoption agency the Hiltz was investigated, it emerged that through a legislative loophole, the organization was one of several that weren't accredited by the Russian government. And according to the National Council for Adoption, these agencies didn't require prospective parents to undertake as much of an intense selection process as Russian government accredited agencies. So long story short, like this was sort of a negligent agency and it wasn't accredited by the Russian government. And somehow they were able to like get through that process. So for what it is worth, the agency that the Hilts used noted in their records that the couple's relationship was stable and happy and You also have to understand from their perspective, they had this incredible success story with their first daughter, Natalia, who
3: they seem to bond to properly and, you know, thrive with. And amidst the backlash, outraged Russian authorities called for an immediate moratorium on adoptions to U.S. families. But Russian child advocacy groups urged for adoptions to continue with changes to the existing system. Halting adoptions altogether would not only disadvantage many children from having a better life, but could force families to seek other means of adopting which weren't in the best interests of the child. And of course, U.S. couples who were in the midst of the adoption process were now thrown into a maelstrom of uncertainty, not knowing if their adoptions would even go through.
2: It was on the news, like nightly, because there was so much rage. It was in the newspaper. It was on TV. There were so many... Um, couples that were in the midst of adopting, and all that was halted because there had been quite a few adoptions over the past couple years that resulted in the death of a child.
0: Seeking the truth never gets old.
4: Following Nina's death in July of 2005, there was a massive, instantaneous upheaval when it came to pending and future Russian-U.S. adoptions. So we're going to pause here to talk a little bit about international adoption in the Russian context.
3: According to the U.S. State Department, Russia is the second most popular country for international adoptions after China – Since 1991, more than 50,000 Russian children have been adopted by U.S. citizens. And half of the 10,000 Russian children adopted each year by families overseas go to the U.S. where they account for a quarter of all foreign children adopted in America each year. Prospective parents spend upwards of $50,000
4: to go through rigorous You know, assessments, home studies, background checks, jump through legal hoops, make multiple overseas trips, and even mortgages or homes to finance these adoptions they want so badly. And after waiting through a time consuming and expensive bureaucratic process, the majority of adopted children go on to thrive and enjoy healthy relationships with their adoptive families. Usually, there is a happy ending. But for a very small fraction of families, it's not always this easy, and it's not the
3: case. Families trust their adoption agency has provided them with everything that they need to know about their child, but a lack of transparency on the part of both Russian orphanages and U.S. adoption agencies not accredited with the Russian government has profound consequences for couples who just want to give a child a loving home.
4: Right. For example, the ratio of care staff to kids in orphanages in Russia leaves a lot to be desired, with as little as two adults caring for upwards of two dozen children. The bleak conditions of some orphanages literally make it a case of survival of the fittest where emotional neglect by staff, severe bullying, sexual abuse by other children, it makes kids, you know, it makes them hypervigilant, makes them withdrawn, or on the flip side, it makes them develop aggression. And it's super sad if you think about the trauma that someone could, you know, experience in an environment like this where they're not getting the care they need. So Back to our case, the moratorium on Russian adoptions following Peggy's arrest wasn't permanent, at least not yet. But the Russian government swiftly set about trying to enact reforms. So in the interim, even adoptions that were all but done were temporarily put on hold, devastating tons of families who were in the midst of adoptions of Russian children.
2: I think they were like, "Okay, we need to take a pause and see what's going wrong with this adoption process from
3: Russia. I mean, people were so angry at her. If convicted, Peggy was facing a prison sentence of five to 40 years. A psychiatric evaluation found that she was competent both at the time she assaulted Nina and to stand trial. But in March of 2006, Peggy pleaded guilty and there was no plea bargain.
2: I know that she had told me that she decided to plead guilty and turn herself in because she didn't want to cause any more harm to her daughter and her husband at the time.
4: So at her sentencing two months later, the court heard Peggy had no prior record and was battling a range of issues, including alcohol addiction. The convicted killer was overcome with emotion as she attempted to make a statement, only managing to say,
3: saying I'm sorry doesn't even come close to the way I feel. The judge was critical of the amount of time that Peggy waited to seek medical attention for Nina. Nina. Peggy was sentenced to 35
4: years in prison with 10 years suspended. And it was also a punishment that many in the U.S. and Russia
3: felt was a strong message. Kelly always maintained compassion for her friend and even visited her in jail. And over time, Peggy unburdened herself to Kelly. She did tell me that she remembered that when she beat Nina, she lost
2: it. And she said it was the only time it ever happened. And that afterward, she put her down to bed for a nap i remember her telling me like oh my god oh my god what did i just do she wasn't going to tell anybody it was one of those things oh my gosh i'll never get that mad again i'll never get that much in a rage it was one of those i think she thought it was a mistake that she beat her and hit her but nobody saw nobody knew and she just wouldn't do it again i remember her telling me she had already hurt her child and her husband enough she was not going to try to plead insanity or try to get off on some technicality She knew what she did was wrong. I think that she was just frustrated that she just didn't have the relationship with Nina that she thought she would. She didn't bond with her and throw being a closet alcoholic in the mix and that child angers you for whatever reason, you just lose your cool. I think that's what happened. I know it was not planned. She just flew into a rage. Kelly began exchanging letters with Peggy. And the pair wrote to each other for the next four years. For a number of years, I kept in touch with her while she was in prison. I remember my mother told me, she said, everyone is going to abandon this woman. Her marriage will eventually fall apart. She definitely expressed regrets in her letters. At least I felt it was regret. She knew that, you know, she ruined her life. I just think it's sad. Obviously, she was hurting and just, for whatever reason, didn't feel as though she could share that. Not just with me, but with family members or her husband or whatever.
3: But eventually, Kelly's family moved overseas, so she told Peggy that she couldn't stay in touch anymore.
2: I just decided, you know, for my own health and my children come first. I told her in a letter that we were going to be moving and I probably was not going to be keeping in touch. And so then I stopped keeping in touch.
4: If you set aside the fact that children are far more likely to die at the hands of their caregivers as opposed to strangers... Peggy isn't actually the person who typically comes to mind when we think of child killers. She wasn't a sexual predator. And at least in the research we were able to find, there wasn't anything to indicate she had previously
3: physically abused Nina in any way. Kelly acknowledges that she can be angry at Peggy and also have compassion for her at the very same time.
2: I think of that little girl, even here it is, 18 years later. And I can just cry because I'm sure her father just misses her every day. It just breaks my heart that here was a little girl who was born in Russia, and she wasn't wanted in Russia by her birth mother. But then to get a mother who obviously harmed her, when I think about how her life, her short two years, just, oh, it just breaks my heart. If I did not know Peggy, I'm the type of person, like, throw the book at them. To kill a child, to me, there's no more of a heinous crime. But I knew her. And I guess maybe the thing that complicates it is that I did see her with the children and playing with them and taking care of them. And I know she loved them. So then there's the fact that
4: Peggy quickly confessed to police, pleaded guilty. And uh, her claim was that she didn't intend to kill Nina, hence the second degree murder charge. And Kelly, our first degree, understands why people are quick to condemn Peggy. I mean, it's it's a horrible. It's like the worst thing you can think of, killing an innocent little girl, right? Without empathy. And perhaps why some argue she's getting off too lightly. But Kelly doesn't think it's that clear cut. And honestly, I don't either. It's kind of gray as opposed to black and white. This is not a person who had repeated discussing abhorrent behavior. This is a person who, under enormous
2: pressure and who knows what else, did something unforgivable, right? I think it's just frightening to think just one bad mistake, just one bad judgment call. She was intoxicated, and I'm not making excuses. I'm just saying one bad judgment, one bad mistake ruined her life, ruined her older daughter's life. You know, now her mother's in prison, ruined a marriage. It's just sad. It's sad for everyone. It's the saddest for Nina, but it's sad for all the lives that were lost, all the tragedy that happened. And I wish she had reached out for help. I wish she had shared with me, hey, I'm struggling with alcohol or, hey, I'm really struggling that I'm not bonding with Nina. I'm having these thoughts. I mean, I don't know if she had those thoughts. I just hate that she didn't feel that she had resources to talk to, to help figure it out and maybe that is where the complication comes in it makes you just realize that sometimes like we like to think think of things as so black and white like hate them because they did this like i totally get the hate them because like they were a serial killer or they did it multiple times like they didn't learn their lesson or or they're just ingrainly evil but then there are some people that make a horrific mistake own the mistake take responsibility for the mistake she took the sentence that was given and
3: just did it. During her time in jail, Peggy has been working to gain new skills to prepare her release.
2: I do remember that when we were corresponding that she said that she was doing classes in jail so that when she did get out she could hopefully get a job in some sort of a trade.
3: Chris divorced his wife and eventually regained custody of Natalia, but they eventually stopped visiting Peggy in prison.
2: A heartbreak for her husband. It was such a tragic story that the true victim is Nina. That's the true victim, not Peggy, not anyone that knew her. The true victim is Nina because she had such a short life and such a difficult one in just those two years. And obviously that child just wanted to be loved coming from an orphanage.
4: So speaking of Chris, you'll recall we mentioned earlier that he disagrees with Peggy's narrative about Nina's behavioral problems. So, on his website that he's dedicated to Nina, Chris explains that he never saw his youngest daughter being destructive or harmful in any way to her older sister. He's also adamant that Nina didn't throw temper tantrums, and no babysitters ever reported any issues with her either. And a lot of what's been reported about Nina's behavior emerged after she died. So, Chris is skeptical about a lot of these claims. And he's even said that just
3: before Nina died, she was
4: showing signs of bonding with Peggy. A
3: couple of years after Nina's murder, her case was featured on an episode of the true crime show, Women Behind Bars. Kelly remembers that the Wake Forest community had differing perceptions of how Peggy was presented in the episode.
2: If you happen to watch the episode, one of the FBI agents in there that talked to Peggy, <laughs> I watched it just recently because I wanted to kind of refresh myself before we talked. And I was like, oh my gosh, that was the agent that came to my house. That was kind of like surreal to then see her on the TV discussing the case when I vividly remember her in my living room asking me questions. I know some people felt as though she didn't seem very remorseful in the episode. I only saw her in prison, and at the time, she came across very remorseful. So everybody sees different sides of people.
4: U.S. adoptions of Russian children continue to decline following Peggy's conviction. In 2010, Russia suspended these for the United States entirely, while it worked on revising and, you know, making the adoption agreements between the U.S. and Russia sort of more comprehensive. Like, they were trying to solve this
3: problem. And by late 2012, the agreement was all set to take effect. But then President Putin decided that that wasn't going to happen. As retaliation in response to U.S. sanctions against Russians suspected of human rights abuses, in January of 2013, the president placed a ban on U.S. citizens adopting Russian children. So now the whole thing is a diplomatic and political mess, and it doesn't look like it's going to be resolved anytime soon. And it really is very sad because now, you know, there are children out there that are suffering.
4: Right. And as for Peggy... Now she's 50 years old, and she's actually due to be released in April of 2023. That's literally in a couple of months. And following her release, she'll be subjected to five years probation. So talking to her first degree, Kelly, she has thought a lot about whether or not she'd be willing to get back in touch with Peggy should the opportunity arise.
2: She accepted responsibility, paid the price. When we did correspond and when we would talk, she to me, owned up to what a heinous thing she had done and how horrific it was, had I not seen remorse or regret, then I would not be able to talk to somebody. When someone can say I made a huge mistake, I've paid for it, that doesn't mean that they should pay for it their entire life by not having a friend or not having a confidence. You get busy with your own life, and I try to surround myself with positive people. I haven't had any contact. If she reached out, would I respond back? Yes, I would. Which, again, I think she took the life of her child. I should hate her, and if she ever reached out, I, you would think I wouldn't. But if someone just needed to reach out and say hello, I I would always respond back. That's just me.
3: The takeaways for Kelly highlighted the importance of being truly present in her friendships going forward. I definitely
2: have deeper friendships and ask the hard questions. Back in the day when I knew that she was struggling in bonding with Nina, I wish I had asked harder, deeper questions to really get to the root of her frustration. Maybe I would have seen a sign. Maybe I would have seen something concerning that I could have gone to her husband and said, hey, she's really, really struggling. You know, maybe she needs some help. And so maybe that's what I've taken away is just invest more in people to really know, really know them, not just on the surface, so that if you do see a red flag, that maybe you can get help for them or point it out to someone that they're close to to get them the help. I think that 18 years ago, we didn't have the resources like we do now. I mean, you know, we didn't have all this social media and stuff where people can go on chats and forums and listen to podcasts and get advice. And so I hope that people recognize there are so many resources you can go to. I think we're much more of a society now that talks more openly about all the issues where 18 years ago you hid them, you're embarrassed by them, you didn't seek help because you looked weak and I don't think it's like that now well we can all
4: throw this word evil around I think there is a difference between someone who's an otherwise decent person who did a horrific thing and someone who's truly evil and so to end this episode today I want to share an excerpt from one of my favorite books and the book is called the people of the Lie*. The Hope for Healing Human Evil. And it's written by psychiatrist Dr. M. Scott Peck. He talks about what evil means and what evil is. And I'm going to paraphrase because one quote won't actually do it justice. But what he says is basically how you can determine whether or not someone is evil is by the consistency of their acts. One act of unkindness or malice can be equated to any number of things. But if you're really looking at someone evil, you need to look at the persistence, the consistency and the regularity of their acts. And that's how you really know. Take that for what you will. I'm not, we're not one to tell you to determine whether or not Peggy's evil or not. That's up to you. But we know that, you know, intense pressure, there's this whole multitude of variables that can contribute to an evil actor or a heinous act. And, It's not as black and white as we think.
3: So we want to thank Kelly for being our first degree for today's episode. If you're listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us. Hello at the first degree podcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group. We are talking true crime all the time. Join our Patreon. If you're looking for any bonus content and stick around tomorrow, because we're going to have a brand new episode of killing time, right in your feed. That is right. And remember only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close, but
4: not that close. Shout out to Jared Monica for scoring original music for the first Greek producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Gemma Harris. Sources for this episode are The Washington Post, The New York Times, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, U.S. State Department, the National Council for Adoption, NPR, The New Yorker, ChildrenInTherapy.org, Therapy.org, Women Behind Bars, RememberNina.com, NBC News, Sputnik News, WRAL News, the Associated Press, the Raleigh News and Observer, the Wake Weekly, the Mayo Clinic, the Moscow Times, the Child Maltreatment Journal, Newsweek, ABC News, the Huffington Post, and medium.com. And remember,
1: as always, our first three guests is always our largest source. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style